Today, we want to continue our Summer in the Psalms series. Uh, we've been doing it at prayer meeting as well on Wednesday nights, so hopefully you're enjoying spending time in the song book of the Bible, the Psalms. We were in prayer meeting on Wednesday, we were in Psalm 133, one of my favorites, and talking about unity. But today we want to look at a different psalm, actually two psalms, that really belong together. The two psalms we want to look at today are Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And you may have noticed throughout this series, we haven't had that many so far yet, but you're probably going to notice that uh, the psalms that we have selected, we've got plenty to choose from, there are 150, but we've tried to pick a different kind of psalm each time. So last week, when Pastor Nick was preaching, he preached on a Thanksgiving psalm. But today, I want to share with you what God has laid on my heart from Psalm 42 and 43, which is a lament psalm, a lament psalm. So before we look at that, let's bow once again for a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that you love us when we feel lost, when we feel separated from you, when we feel like you're not there, you are there. And we thank you that you are always there. Jesus, Hebrews 13 tells us, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we thank you as we look at your word today and look at Psalm 42 and 43, this combination psalm that is expressing lament, expressing frustration, expressing fear, expressing doubt. Thank you that you in your sovereign grace have included this in your word to teach us how to complain to you in the right way, to understand that it's okay to talk to you about these things, to feel these things. And so I pray now as we work our way through Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 that you would just open our hearts to receive your truth, that your Holy Spirit would move on each one of us to teach us those things that we need to know and to just once again increase our trust in you, that we would put our hope in you because there is no other. Cleanse my lips to speak your truth now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, we're calling this a lament psalm. Lament is not a word we use in everyday English today. That sounds like something your high school teacher made you look up in the dictionary when you did some sort of Shakespeare study, Romeo and Juliet, or some sort of thing like that. But lament is just a fancy old English word that means complain. Complain. We all know what complain means, right? I'm really good at that. Maybe that's my spiritual gift, is complaining. I really know how to do that. That's one of my best skills, complaining. 
Oh, the traffic's too bad. The airport is too crowded. This food is taking too long to cook. I'm really good at complaining. But lament psalms are one of the three most common psalms in the Bible. And sometimes we get it in our head that once you become a Christian, all your problems are solved. I don't know who told you that. Now, ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, all our problems will be solved. We will spend eternity with Jesus, and we will glorify and worship him and celebrate his victory forever. So everything is going to be all right. But we're not there yet. And that is the thing that lament psalms really try to come to grips with. Lament psalms, are, as I said, are one of the three most common psalms in the book of Psalms. So what is a lament psalm designed to do? When you read a lament psalm, it is a complaint. It is a crying out to God in times of deep distress and despair. But understand, when these people are crying out to God, they are not simply saying, this is terrible, I hate this. It moves, it it includes that, and we're going to see that very much, but it moves beyond that to ask God to deliver his people from suffering, from sorrow, from great loss, from failure, from enemies. So oftentimes I complain because I think things are not going to get better. Oh, the stupid traffic. And complaining is done simply to say, I don't like the way things are. But the psalmist in a lament psalm never ends with a complaint. It begins with a complaint, but it never ends with a complaint because lament psalms are always founded on a deep trust in God to act for his people. Complaining is never worth anything unless you complain to somebody who can do something about it. How many times have you gone to a store? And uh, actually, I went to the store on Friday and I bought some paper. I was at Walmart, bought some paper. And I, I don't like to line up. I'm impatient. So I'd go to that self-serve thing. So I scanned my paper and the shelf price said two for $14. It was the two big reams of paper, two for $14. I thought, great. So I rang it up and the little machine said two for $15. And I said, wait a minute. I thought the shelf price said $14. Now, what I could have done was I could have said, stupid Walmart trying to rip me off, just put my stuff in a bag and go out and get in the car. Did I do that? Well, I did complain. But I complained to the worker. And you know what the worker did? He went and got the manager. And what did the manager do? 
he went and he looked at the situation and he said, you're right, the price is not $15, the price is $14. And he put his little scanner thing in there, bing, 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 and suddenly it was two for $14. What am I saying? Just like I complained so that something would happen, the psalmist in Lament Psalms always complains to somebody who can fix it, somebody who can take care of it. So lament psalms are not built out of distrust for God. They're built out of a deep trust in God to say, I'm coming to you because I know you can fix it. Now, there are over 60 examples of these kinds of psalms. Some of them are individual, and I've listed on the screen for you some of those. And those are used to express individual struggles and suffering and so on. But there are a few as well that are also corporate laments where the people of Israel together as a nation complain to God and ask for deliverance from him. So this, as I said, is a very common kind of psalm in the book of Psalms. So what is the structure for Psalm 42, 43? I'll mention this very quickly because I want to get into the text. Because it is lament, the first thing that you will notice about the text is very quickly the writer begins to complain and complains to God. Throughout the psalm, we're going to see various descriptions of difficult circumstances described in very picturesque language. But the thing that the writer is struggling with is what I'm calling a disconnect between what he knows and what he feels. A disconnect between what he knows and what he feels. In other words, we're going to see, God, I know that you are a great God. I know that you know everything. But I feel lost. I feel alone. I feel separated from you. I can't put these two things together. We're going to see that disconnect several times in Psalm 42 and 43. The other thing we're going to see is several times in Psalm 42 and 43, there will be a direct question to God. Where are you? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? But lament psalms and these two psalms specifically never end on those questions. The last thing is always the antidote, the answer. How do we solve this problem of spiritual depression? And so with that antidote, the faith of the writer is restored and he begins to call to God for help. This is what we're going to see in Psalm 42 and 43. So the outline I have for the sermon today, the title is The Antidote for Spiritual Depression. It's not a pill. It's not psychotherapy although I'm not criticizing pills or psychotherapy. What is the antidote for spiritual depression according to Psalm 42 and 43? 
So these two psalms divide up into three sections. What do you do when you feel dry and separated from God? What do you do when you feel overwhelmed and forgotten by God? What do you do when you feel attacked and rejected by God? Psalm 42 and 43 tell us the answer. So let's look at the text now. Let's start with the first one. What do you do when you feel dry and separated from God? So when we look at the text, the first thing that you'll notice is this psalm has a title. And the title, a lot of times people skip over the title. Oh, the title is written by so-and-so when they were doing this or that, blah, 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 whatever. This one is very significant. It is written to, or by, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Remember who the sons of Korah are? Way back when the people were in the wilderness and they were complaining. There was a guy named Korah who complained. He didn't like the fact that he and his descendants had to carry all of the stuff around in the wilderness, carry all the parts of the tabernacle and carry it on their shoulders and all that stuff. And so they began to say to Moses, we don't want to do this job. We would rather do the job that Aaron's family does, the sacrificing, the cool stuff, the, the, less, the less burdensome stuff. And so in the wilderness, there was a struggle, there was a rebellion, and ultimately Korah died. Do you know how he died? The ground opened up, he fell into the ground, and the ground closed over him, and he was destroyed. And yet, God in his providence and in his mercy to his offspring, Numbers 26 verse 11 says that God did not kill the sons of Korah. And they became the ones both in the tabernacle and in the temple who led the people in worship. They were the worship leaders for the singing time at the temple. And so this is a psalm written by people who sing and lead worship in the tabernacle and in the temple of God. And so here's how the text starts. As the de a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This is his complaint. Now, we sing a song. I won't sing it for you. I'll probably break the internet if I started to sing. But we know this song, right? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee. You my, are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. And we think, oh, panting for God, that's a good thing. That's not what it means here. What it means here is this person feels dry. This person feels 
separated from God. This person feels that God is way over here and I am way over here and I just feel totally separate from him. He is far, far away from me. So just like a deer is lost without water, I feel far away from God. Because when you look, the last part of verse 2 is where he asks his first question. What is the question? When shall I come and appear before God? When shall I come and appear before God? This is a person or the writer is a person who is used to being in the center of the action, leading people in worship, showing them, leading them in song, helping them to worship God with their voices, playing musical instruments to encourage people in their worship of God. But right now, this person feels far away from God. It's interesting that this question can be translated in a couple of different ways. ESV has it, When shall I come and appear before God? But another way of translating this question is, When shall I come and see the face of God? When shall I come and see the face of God? Right now I feel like God has turned his back on me. I don't feel anywhere close to God. I am completely dry and shriveled up. In asking this question, he continues to describe the feeling, the circumstance that goes along with this in verse 3 when he says, My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me, all the day long, where is your God? This person is so dry. They are so lonely. They are so feeling separated from God. They can't eat. They're crying all the time. And just to heap indignity upon indignity, all the people around them are saying, where's God? He doesn't care about you. Your God is a nothing God. He's not helping you. He's not doing anything for you. Where's your God? He's not for you. And it just makes the psalmist feel lower and lower and lower and lower. And so as I said, this difficult circumstance, this feeling of being separated from God, being dry, not feeling in fellowship with God, leads to this disconnect between what he knows to be true and what he feels. Verse 4 says this, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. What is he remembering? How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. What is he talking about here? 
as a son of Korah, one of his jobs would be to lead the people at the Passover festival, at the Feast of Pentecost, at all the different festivals that Israel would celebrate, as the people would gather together in the temple. He would be one of the ones leading the people to the temple, worshiping God with shouts of joy and shouts of praise. And he remembers this, but he doesn't remember it in the sense of those were the good old days, although they were good old days. He remembers them in such a way as to say, I wish I had that now, but I don't. I wish I had that now, but I don't. I know exactly what that feels like. Many of you who have come to Canada from another country know exactly what that feels like. I remember the first year when we were in China, we went in February. And we were there for the spring semester. We stayed for the summer. And we started teaching again in the fall semester. We were there for the whole year. And December rolled around. And in China, Christmas, at that time, in 2000, was nothing. Nobody celebrated Christmas. Nobody got together for Christmas. The big holiday in China is in late January, early February. It's called Chunjie, Spring Festival. That's when everybody gets together. So here I am sitting with my wife and my two little children in our little apartment, and I know exactly what this feels like. I remember sitting with my parents and my sisters with a big turkey in front of us, and we would enjoy the meal together. And this was a wonderful time. Did, thinking about that, did it make me feel better? No, it made me cry. It made me feel sad because I remembered the good old days, what it used to be like, and now it's not like that anymore. Now, long story short, I learned to love Spring Festival, and we enjoyed Spring Festival year after year after year. But that first Christmas, it was rough. And so you've got the psalmist here talking about all this difficulty he's experiencing, all the trouble that he's going through. And compounded on that is he remembers when it was better. But right now, it's just terrible. And he feels dry and he feels separated from God. What does he do now? Verse 5 gives us the antidote. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What's the antidote? Hope in God. Hope in God. When you feel dry, when you feel like God is far away from you, hope in God. He feels far away, separated from the temple. We're going to see that in the next verses, especially physically distant from the temple. But he says, I shall again praise him. 
this temporary difficulty will pass because salvation belongs to our God. My salvation and my God are one. He is the one that is going to make a way for me. Now, if the psalm ended there, you'd think, wonderful, that's a wonderful psalm. But he keeps going. And starting in the second part of verse 6, he continues to describe this feeling, and it's now intensifying and getting worse. And so the second section I'm calling this, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed and forgotten by God? Before he felt dry and separated. Now it's, it's going to get worse. And he feels overwhelmed and forgotten by God. Here's what it says. Starting at 6b, it says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. You say, that doesn't sound like a complaint. That sounds like a geography lesson. I'm in the land of Jordan and Hermon from Mount Mizar. Mount Mizar, you can't really find Mount Mizar on a map, but Mizar in Hebrew literally means little, a little mountain. And so Mount Hermon is a big mountain in the northeast part of Israel. And so many scholars think that Mount Mizar is one of the, the lower hills, mountains around that area. But why is he talking about being here? Because this is a person who is supposed to be at the temple, leading the people in worshiping God. And yet he is far, far, far away from Jerusalem. And in fact, uh, some scholars even say the location he describes is when the captives went into captivity, when they were on Mount Hermon. That was the last time, because it was the highest point, that they could look back and still see Jerusalem. And once they came down off the side of Mount Hermon, Israel and Jerusalem were gone. They were gone from their sight. They couldn't see the place where I led the people in worship. It's gone. So many people think he's describing, you know, when you, when you look at, at the captivity of Israel, it didn't happen all at once. They took the royal people and the relig religious leaders first. That's when Daniel and his friends went out. It wasn't until several years later that they came and destroyed the temple. And so possibly this, the writer of this is one of those people that's heading off into captivity. And the last chance he has to look back at Jerusalem, to remember all the good that was there, is disappearing. And so he says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from this faraway place where I can barely see you anymore. And this leads again to a disconnect. How can God be doing this to me? And he describes some of the difficulties and fears he is experiencing. Deep calls to deep, he says in verse 7. At the roar of your waterfalls, 
all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. In other words, I am overwhelmed. At the beginning of the psalm, he was looking for, like a deer, for water, for sustenance because he was dry. But now the feeling is he's just being swamped, that wave after wave after wave is crashing over him, and he is being overwhelmed. He can't take it anymore. And yet he is able to say, even though I feel this way, verse 8, I know what does he say? By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. In the midst of all of this feeling of being totally and completely overwhelmed, he still knows God commands his steadfast love. When I wake up at night because I'm disturbed by all that's going on with me. Your song is still with me. And I pray to the God of my life. So now he asks a question again. I know this is true, but I feel all of these things. So in verse 9 he said, I say to God, my rock, the one who should protect me and Cover me when all of these waves are crashing over me. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I feel like you don't even remember who I am. He continues on. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Why are you allowing this pagan people who doesn't worship you to take me away why have you forgotten me and he begins to describe in verse 10 the deep pain that he feels as with a deadly wound in my bones my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long where is your god we're the big winners we're taking you into captivity you are a loser. Where is your God? And it's at this point again, the writer comes back and says exactly the same thing that he said in verse 5. The antidote is still the antidote. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Why are you sad? Why are you in turmoil? God is God. Hope in him. And he will be your salvation. Finally, he actually starts listening to himself and answering this question. But he continues on in Psalm 43. And now he's, it's even more severe. First he felt dry, then he felt overwhelmed. Now he feels specifically attacked. So what do you do when you feel attacked and rejected by God? Well, he's already told himself 
Why are you cast down? Hope in God. And so finally he figures out, rather than just complaining, I need to talk directly to the one who can fix it. And so beginning at verse 1 of 43, he says this, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. There are those who are taking him away. There are those that are deceitful and unjust and accusing him of all of these horrible and terrible things. And so he says to God, vindicate me like a lawyer vindicates you or you're found not guilty. Vindicate me and defend my cause because you are my God. That's what he says in verse 2. You are the God in whom I take refuge. So why have you rejected me? Why have you let me go far away from you? And the last question in verse 2. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I feel like you don't care. Before I felt far away, then I felt forgotten. Now I feel rejected. Why are you not doing something? Why are you not fixing it? And so he makes his final call in verses 3 and 4 to ask for God's help. He says in verse 3, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. How does he ask God to help him? He asks God to send him light and his truth. Guide me. What what does Proverbs say? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Let me come back to the temple. Let me come back and worship you. Let your word guide me. Let it lead me back to you. I'm going off who knows where, for how long, but I am trusting you, God. Let those things bring me back to your holy hill. That is the temple mount. Let it bring me back to your dwelling. What is that place? The temple. Bring me back to your city. Bring me back to your temple. And then in verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God. I want to come back to the city. I want to come back to the temple. I want to come back to the altar. And finally he says, I want to come back to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God. God has not rejected me. Someday I trust, I believe, because I know who God is, that he is going to bring me back, not only to the city, but into direct relationship and fellowship with him again. And so he concludes in verse 5. Where have we heard these words before? 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So three times the writer asks this question and gives the answer, hope in God. So let me ask a question. How does this antidote work? How does this antidote make the writer feel better? How should it make us feel better? Number one, he talks to himself. Now you say, that sounds like what crazy people do. Talk to themselves. But really, what has been going on is that the writer has been listening to the evil one. And listening to all of the lies that the evil one is saying to him. You're no good. God doesn't care about you. God has forgotten you. God has rejected you. And he's listening. What is the antidote? He talks to himself. He speaks to himself. He doesn't give in to depression or self-pity. He reminds himself again of what he already knows. And then he challenges himself. What is the challenge? Put your hope in God. Why? Because there is no lasting hope in anything else. And finally, he reminds himself of a great certainty. I will yet again praise him. Is based on the fact that God's character is immutable. It's unchangeable. When God promises to be your rock, to love you, to protect you and take care of you, he will. God has not changed. Therefore, his purposes for me, have not changed. Finally, I mentioned at the beginning of this series that we would always tie this into Jesus. So this is a wonderful psalm that gives us encouragement and tells us how we can overcome spiritual depression. Hope in God. But how is Psalm 42 and 43 ultimately about Jesus? How does Psalm 42 and 43 fit in to the fact that Jesus said to his disciples, he began in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms to show them that everything is about him. How is this about Jesus? Well, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever feel separated from God? On the cross, Matthew 27, 46 tells us, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was separated from the Father because he was taking the sin of the world on himself. And yet what does the Psalm tell us to do? Put your hope in God. 
And just before Jesus died, what is the last thing he says? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He put his hope in God. When did Jesus ever feel overwhelmed? Elias read for us from Matthew 26. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he actually uses the same vocabulary that Psalm 42, verse 6 uses. My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. My soul is very sorrowful. Jesus sweat tears of blood because he was so overwhelmed with the task that was in front of him and the enormity of the cross. And yet, what did he say? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, he put his hope in God. Finally, did Jesus ever feel attacked? All through his life he was attacked. But when we are looking for the ultimate attack, again we are drawn to the cross where Jesus was ultimately attacked by going to the cross. Pilate made fun of him with the sign over his head, the king of the Jews. The religious leaders mocked him. The, the robber on one side of him made fun of him. He was attacked. And Matthew 27, 39 and 40 tells us this. As he's, Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying for our sin, those who passed by derided him, made fun of him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. They attacked him with deceitful lies. How did Jesus respond? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He put his hope in God. So you say, well, that was a neat parlor trick, David. You showed Jesus doing the same kinds of things. So what? Why does it matter that Jesus lamented? Because just as the psalm describes what we should do, Jesus becomes the model for how we should lament when we feel separated from God, when we are overwhelmed, when we are being attacked. Just like Jesus, we put our hope in God. And finally, when we properly lament after the model of Jesus and put our hope in God, we can know that when we come with our complaints to God, Jesus understands exactly how we feel. 
Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hope in God. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why are you cast down? O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can come to you with our complaints, with our laments, with our deep hurts, we thank you that Jesus knows and understands how we feel. Thank you that we can put our hope and our trust in you. Thank you that that hope is not cross our fingers hope or hold our breath hope or maybe hope, but it is hope in a certain and sure God who loves us enough that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Help us when we feel lost, when we feel separated, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel attacked, help us to put our hope and our trust in you, knowing that you understand and that you will be our salvation and our hope. Thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.